You're listening to the N2K Space Network. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. I've been working in communications for more than a little while now, so I can tell you a bit of insider knowledge here. When someone calls a last-minute, end-of-day press conference, the news is either really good or really bad. Usually the latter. So with just a few weeks left before Boeing's Starliner scheduled crew flight test coming up, when yesterday many of us saw a sudden 5 p.m. press conference announced with NASA and Boeing, I swear you could hear a collective, uh-oh. T-minus 20 seconds Today is June 2nd, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazes, and this is T-Minus. Boeing Starliner delayed. Pixel raises a Google-led Series B. The Pentagon buys Starlink for use in Ukraine. Changes in Space Force leadership. North Korea is in a sharing mood. And my conversation with futurist and author Peter W. Singer, the managing partner at Useful Fiction, about the future of space tech and the power of narrative. It's a fascinating Friday conversation. Definitely tune in for this one. Here is our Intel briefing for today. No, it's not happy news to report about Boeing's Starliner program today. Yesterday, Boeing announced that Starliner's crew flight test, which was rescheduled from April to July 21st, is unfortunately yet again delayed. Its rescheduled flight test date is currently pending due to two issues discovered just before Memorial Day. One of the problems found involves a protective glass cloth tape wrapped around wiring harnesses throughout Starliner, Recent tests found that in some corner cases, this tape is potentially flammable. And a second issue is regarding a possible failure point in Starliner's parachute system, specifically the soft links between Starliner and its parachutes, which were found to have had a lower load limit than required. This means should one of the three parachutes fail during landing, it's possible that the other two lines holding up Starliner could snap. Both of these issues present serious safety concerns, so understandably, the crew flight test is off for now, with no revised target for a launch date at this time. NASA awarded Boeing about $5 billion to develop Starliner, which, as you likely know, directly competes with SpaceX's Starship on the NASA Commercial Crew Program. Boeing's on a fixed-cost contract with NASA, 
And the subsequent delays in the Starliner program have cost Boeing about $833 million to cover. As Boeing nails down the issues and figures out their remediation options, we'll learn more about their path forward here as well as any potential timeline estimates. And we'll be sure to keep you updated too. And I should mention, if you want to hear more about the Boeing Starliner program, do check out our conversation with Florida Today's space editor, Emery Kelly, from our May 17th episode. Now let's move over to some business news now. Bangalore, India-based space technology company Pixel has raised over $36 million U.S. million in a Series B funding round led by Google. Pixel launched its first Pathfinder satellites last year and aims to put a constellation of over 30 hyperspectral Earth observation microsatellites into a sun-synchronous orbit in the coming years. The company aims to collect data and produce analytical tools to mine insights from that data detecting, monitoring, and predicting global phenomena. Pixel is one of six companies that recently signed agreements with the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office to produce hyperspectral imagery for the Strategic Commercial Enhancements Program. Pixel has raised over $71 million U.S. dollars to date. Bloomberg News is reporting that the Pentagon has signed an agreement to purchase Starlink satellite services from SpaceX for use in Ukraine. The U.S. Defense Department has not disclosed the contract value or terminal quantities, but has stated that the satellites constitute a vital layer in Ukraine's overall communications network as the country faces continued conflict with Russia. SpaceX sent Starlink ground terminals to Ukraine at the start of the conflict, but warned late last year that the company could not continue to fund the use of its terminals indefinitely. SpaceX has over 4,000 Starlink satellites in low Earth orbit, or LEO, which communicate with designated ground transceivers and is used by over 1.5 million customers worldwide. Change of Command is coming up on June 30th, and Space Launch Delta 45, the Space Force unit that oversees launch operations in the Eastern Range, will have a new leader. The U.S. Air Force announced that Brigadier General Kristen Panzenhagen will replace Major General Stephen Purdy as the next commander of the launch site. Panzenhagen was previously a senior military assistant to the Undersecretary of the Air Force and senior material leader of the Integrated Ground Enterprise Directorate at the National Reconnaissance Office. Purdy will be moving to the Pentagon to become military deputy to Frank Calvelli, Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Space Acquisition and Integration. Now staying with the Space Force for a moment, and the military branch updated its request for information looking to identify industry sources capable of providing a spacecraft bus and integration support for a low-Earth orbit, polar-orbiting, sun-synchronous weather sensor to meet space-based environmental monitoring requirements. The weather sensor is expected to be provided as government-furnished equipment. The USSF RFI is also requesting that the company provides post-launch support services. Now going to a completely different country, North Korea. North Korea's state media has made the rare move to release images of its failed rocket launch, enabling analysts from around the world to view the spacecraft in detail. In a report by Reuters, global experts say that the photographs appear to show a new design of their rocket and that the vehicle most likely uses engines developed for the country's intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs. North Korean's Cholima-1 suffered from a second-stage malfunction during its first launch attempt on Wednesday. The rocket was said to be carrying the country's first military reconnaissance satellite. South Korea is working to recover parts of the North Korean rocket from the Yellow Sea. 
Images from parts that have already been recovered appear to show a section designed to join two stages and a liquid propellant tank. Efforts continue to recover more of the spacecraft. French rocket company Latitude successfully conducted the second test campaign for the first version of its 3D-printed Navier rocket engine. This latest campaign validated the performance under maximum constraints for the Navier engine. This first version of the 3D-printed rocket engine will pave the way for a second iteration of Navier, nine of which will power the first stage of their Latitude's rocket, Zephyr. The first launch of Zephyr is scheduled for the end of 2024 from either Saxavord in Scotland or Kourou in French Guiana. CGI Federal has become the first Microsoft global partner to deploy and demonstrate the Azure Orbital Cloud Access satellite backhaul. During the same demonstration, the company also tested Nokia private 5G communications for their U.S. Marine Corps. CGI held the demonstrations at the Marine Corps Platform Integration Center at Blunt Island Command. Microsoft announced Azure Space last year, a set of products and services that will provide access to the cloud from anywhere on the planet. Microsoft aims to use Azure to bring satellite-based communications into their enterprise cloud operation to organizations worldwide. However, they are currently focusing on government agencies as its initial customer base. SpaceX is set to launch its 28th commercial resupply mission to the ISS this weekend. The payload includes research, logistical supplies, and necessities for the Expedition 69 crew currently aboard the ISS. The mission will also be carrying six CubeSats, which will be released into orbit as part of the NanoRacks 26 mission. One CubeSat known as Moonlighter is being launched as a cybersecurity testing target. Moonlighter was developed by the Aerospace Corporation with help from the Air Force Research Laboratory and Space Systems Command. Now, speaking of cybersecurity, cybersecurity in space has been a growing issue that global experts are looking to counter with a new set of industry standards. The Space Systems Cybersecurity Standard Working Group met in Rome and virtually this week to discuss the growing problem of protecting assets in space. With the growth of the commercial space industry, there is a larger market for off-the-shelf space products that introduce more cybersecurity risk. Now, IEEE, a.k.a. the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, which houses the working group, has introduced industry standards, but adoption will be voluntary. You can read all about those recommendations and all of the stories that we've covered in today's show in the selected reading section of our website over at space.n2k.com. And that is it for our Intel briefing for this Friday. Stay with me for my conversation with Peter W. Singer, managing partner at Useful Fiction, on the power of storytelling to produce change in the space sector. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today, I'm talking to Peter W. Singer, a strategist and futurist and a managing partner of a business called Useful Fiction, which brings together narrative and nonfiction products to help organizations tell their important and real stories. We start with what Useful Fiction is, 
and how Peter started his business. I've written a number of nonfiction books on topics that range from cybersecurity to um, robotics, the future of warfare. Um, and yet it was when I teamed up with a friend and, and now my business partner, August Cole, who was um, the defense industry reporter for the Wall Street Journal. So had done a lot of space work as well. We teamed up and we wrote a novel called Ghost Fleet that um, some of your listeners might be familiar with. Ghost Fleet was a novel that imagined what a war between the U.S. and China and Russia might look like, timely. But it's different in that the form of the novel was really a way of sharing nonfiction research. Um, it was a novel, but with 27 pages of footnotes. And every single technology in it, every single trend, even some of the quotes from the characters were actually pulled from the real world. It had a, a, a very um, important space element to it, um, helping to introduce to readers both you know, what's going on in space, particularly um, Chinese uh, efforts, but also the importance of space to not just the modern economy, but to the military. And that um, if there are vulnerabilities there, it could very much hamstring the U.S. military. What happened is um, that book, uh, it, it sold well, but um, even more, it ended up having greater policy impact than any of our nonfiction products it had. Um, we were uh, invited to share its real-world lessons everywhere from uh, the White House uh, to invited to testify to Congress four different times to, uh, you know, briefings on the deck of aircraft carriers, you name it. What was really interesting in this points to the power of story is that it wasn't just briefings on, you know, share the real world lessons, change policies. There were three different government investigations launched to keep things that happened in our novel, our useful fiction, from coming true. So it, you know, kind of didn't predict the future, but prevented a future. The flip side is there were a couple of programs launched to make things in the book come true. Um, most notably, a $3.6 billion Navy ship program that um, they titled Ghost Fleet. It gave me zero dollars for it. So, but what came out of it is that we realized that there was a uh, effect that could happen when you bring together the power of the oldest communication technology of all story, but apply it to nonfiction, apply it to real world problems. Yeah, there's so much going on in, in space, especially in this new space era that we're in. And you were mentioning earlier that you've done some work for both the DOD and for a conference, InterAstra. Can you tell us a little bit about the items that you did there? InterAstra, if, if folks are not familiar with it, is a really fantastic conference on exploring the present and future of space. People behind it are um, Che and Charlie Bolden. Um, uh, che, former Marine officer turned um, just wonderful business entrepreneur. And then Charlie Bolden, you know, uh, former head of NASA, astronaut, Marine general, you name it. And so what we did for them is two things. One, we created a different kind of um, pre-read. You know, if you've ever gone to events, um, you know, typically things are sent out to people beforehand. Here's a bunch of articles you ought to read and, you know, no one reads it. Yeah. <laughs> and so what we did is we worked with them. They identified a couple of key issues that they wanted their conference to explore, um, had different panel tracks around it. One was uh, around the questions of the future space, both looking outward, but um, looking back, what benefit will it cause for planet Earth for the rest of us, not just for a small number of individuals? 
because if it doesn't, uh, then we have a very different discussion around the space economy. Another was about um, who is in the future of space relates to diversity questions. And a third was around questions of uh, future competition and even conflict in space. And how do we keep it from ruining it for the rest of us? How do we manage that? You know, and that's everything from great power rivalry to, you know, space situational awareness and deconfliction. So what we did before the conference is took those themes, took those um, nonfiction nuggets and turned it into both a short story and some visual artwork that essentially envisioned the future of space. And so what we did is we imagined it, we told them through a, essentially it was a fake newspaper profile of a space entrepreneur 30 years out. So it was a a woman who's in the space business, she's imagined, but through this almost like a New York Times Sunday magazine profile, you know, meet so-and-so who's this new interesting person. And there was some artwork for it as well. But through telling her story, we kind of built her off of both real world people in the space economy today but also the story of um, Levi Strauss. So, you know, if space, if, if the hope is that it's the next gold rush, right? Well, the people that really made, you know, there, some people struck gold, a lot of people did not. And the same thing's happening in the real space economy right now. But kind of the long-term um, effect were the people like Levi Strauss that went out there and said, I'm not going to be a miner. I'm going to create a hardware store. Oh, by the way, you know, I'm going to supply the miners what they need. Oh, by the way, I come up with a new different kind of product, um, blue jeans, and that's how I make it. And so I don't want to give away the whole story, but it's kind of around structures and regolith, which is like not as exciting as rare earth minerals, but- Pretty cool though. Yeah, cool stuff. <laughs> but yeah. by telling her imagined story, you got those themes that they wanted people thinking about, engaging with before they got there. And then it also allowed people in attendance to reference something in the conversation. So the cool thing of this event and, you know, similar conferences, you get people from a lot of different backgrounds, but that means they don't have as many shared experiences. And so what you can do is give them what we call a a synthetic experience where they can say, oh, it's just like in that story when, and the other people like, oh yeah, I know that. And even if they're like, oh, I wouldn't have done what that character did or I don't like, you know, but they, they, they know what each other are talking about. So we both did support on the front end. And then um, what we're doing now for them is after effect. So there were three days of, you know, really great conversations. And what we've done is taken those thematic conversations and turn those into narratives. So what are the important findings of bringing together all these great people you know, you can generate out a conference report and those are great, but, you know, most people don't read conference reports. So we turn those into stories that envision it in a manner that strikes home. So, um, oh, one was on the concerns among people from across the space industry that if we don't figure out um, deconfliction and space situational awareness, you know, it's going to ruin it for the rest of us that accidents could cause major, major effects. A sub-theme on that was, um, uh, hey, U.S., you need to have a little bit of modesty. You've been a space leader, but you're not the only player. And if you don't watch out, you could not be 
one of the leaders of this next conversation. And so kind of taking some of those themes, we built out a scenario. It's a, it's a post mild Kessler effect. There's the general view of Kessler effect, which is like, we'll never be able to use space forever. And that the scientists would say, actually, it's not really like that. And so that's kind of, I was being, you know, so it's, it's the way like a space expert would reference it as opposed to like sci-fi. And it's, so it's in the wake of it and it's at an international negotiation where a lot like what happens in, you know, real world arms control, you don't get the negotiation until after the bad day. And, but it's told from the story of the negotiation is happening in Africa area of kind of future space economy but it's told from the perspective of the U.S. government ambassador who's sort of on the sidelines of this event because they've been blamed in part for why things went bad. And so the other new space powers, both private sector, but also the Africa's, the Brazilian space, they're basically like, hey, you and Russia you had your time, you're still in there, but we're not going to let you lead the conversation anymore. And so it's this, again, we're not saying this will happen. It's solely to give someone a way to um, visualize, to understand, hey, what would a Kessler effect really look like? When you say Kessler effect, what would it mean for industry? What would it mean for telecom, et cetera? And then the second part, hey, when we say there's a world where the US might not be leading the conversation, it's um, we basically took the experience that U.S. negotiators have at like certain environmental treaties and replicate that on the space side and say, hey, this has happened in an environment where you're on the sidelines. This could happen for you in space uh, negotiations. And that's why you don't want it to happen. Right. Like the result of that, that, that scenario came out of multiple hours of these space leaders meeting and talking about these issues and then, you know, these are the prime things that they said, nonfiction, we want to share with people. We want them to understand risk of Kessler effect, but also not the crazy sci-fi version of it. Grounded in reality. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We want yeah. them to understand, you know, this or, you know, a different one was on, um, uh, it was about the role of crowdsourcing in um, space projects. And so we created a scenario to tell about it. And the idea was, you know, from the space economy side. We're learning new means of using the wider public, not just as an enthusiast, but like to be part of space missions. And so that's cool. That's exciting. Let's envision. Okay, but what does that mean? What would it look like in execution? And hey, T-minus crew, tune in tomorrow for T-minus Deep Space. That's our show for extended interviews, special editions, and deep dives with some of the most influential professionals in the space industry. Now, tomorrow, we're going to hear more from Peter W. Singer talking about his company, Useful Fiction, and his views on the future of commercial space. It's a fascinating conversation. So make sure you check it out while you're mowing the lawn, grocery shopping, holding laundry, driving your kids to the game, or if you're like me, in between bouts of playing Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. And we'll be right back. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back. And live from the Red Planet, it's Friday at noon. We've seen plenty of stunning imagery from Mars before, of course, but it's always several days old by the time it gets to us. But today, ESA got us about as close to real-time live TV from Mars as we can get right now, at least until someone figures out how to go faster than the speed of light with a fun Friday project to celebrate ESA's 20th anniversary of the Mars Express Explorer. Images taken once every 50 seconds from the Mars Explorer orbiting around Mars via its visual monitoring camera were sent directly to ESA's 35-meter deep space antenna in Sebrero, Spain, without delay. In a mere 17 or so minutes from the photo captures, we here on Earth got to see what Mars Explorer sees. Now, ESA hedged their bets before going live at noon Eastern today. This is a 20-year-old camera, originally planned for engineering purposes at a distance of almost 3 million kilometers. This hasn't been tried before, and to be honest, we're not 100% certain it'll work. But I'm pretty optimistic. Normally, we see images from Mars and know that they were taken days before. And I'm excited to see Mars as it is now, or as close to Martian now as we can possibly get, said James Godfrey, spacecraft operations manager at ESA's Mission Control. And I'm happy to say, indeed, it did work. Ooh. Ooh. Here it is. This is the first image from Mars, and it's the most live you'll ever get, unless you travel to Mars, uh, to the red planet itself. For about an hour, we got basically live imagery from Mars's orbit. This feat required pointing the VMC camera right at Mars, with the Mars Explorer positioned with the antenna pointed right at Earth. So with the movement of the planets, we only got about an hour's window for this to work. And during the stream, we got to see Mars clouds, craters, and a polar cap. And a spate of bad weather over the ground station in Spain caused some trouble for Mars Live here and there. Isn't that always the way? But we got some really neat, just about live views of our neighboring planet today, thanks to ESA and Mars Express. That's amazing. Mission success for hashtag Mars Live and a big, big thanks to Isa for this lovely view of the red planet today. And most of all, happy 20th birthday to the hardworking Mars Express. And that's it for T minus for June 2nd, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We'd love to know what you think of our podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in our show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-Minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. 
Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester. With original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful weekend. T-minus. <laughs>